You must tell me all your secrets. Remember, we must share everything together. is in jeopardy. Hey, lady. How about it? Stay with her. Help her. For she has begun to feel the awful horror of the hunger. John Blaylock. The hunger has given him everlasting life. Until now, pray for him. Miriam Blaylock. She feeds one day in seven on the unsuspecting. And soon she will turn into something that you will never be able to forget. No matter how hard and how long you try, fear her. What have you done to me? Forever and ever. And life signs terminate right here. beauty of Catherine Deneuve, the cruel elegance of David Bowie, the open sensuality of Susan Sarandon, combined to create a modern classic of perverse fear. Hi, this is Annie Rose Malamud, and you're listening to Girls, Guts, and Giallo. Today, I'm joined by Lainey Bird, photographer in New York. Hello. Hi, Lainey. Hi. And we're going to be talking about the film The Hunger, directed by Tony Scott, starring Catherine Deneuve, Susan Sarandon, and David Bowie. So, Lainey, before we get into it, do you want to say a little bit about who you are, what you do, what you're about? Sure. Um, So, my name is Lainey. I'm um, both a fetish photographer, and then um, I leave lead a bit of a double life as a video editor working in a lot of commercial uh, production here in New York. Cool. Yeah. Lainey's work is so amazing. You're one of my favorite photographers. Thank you. And I, it's amazing that I actually know one of my favorite photographers. (laughs) Uh, And I think this is the perfect movie for you to do. When did you first see it? So I saw The Hunger for the first time when I was in college. So I must have been like 19 or 20. I was taking a women in film class because I went to an art school in San Francisco. And that was one of the academic classes that they offered. And um, I had this amazing uh, teacher whose name I can't remember, but she would show up to class in like a pencil skirt and pleaser heels and have like long black hair and blunt bangs and like in hindsight she was totally like in the San Francisco kink scene and I like was just too like closeted and like slow to like see that at the time Um, but she was amazing and so she was the one that kind of like introduced this film um, as part of our our school course so that was the first time that I saw it. Well, if you're out there, professor. <laughs> Random professor whose name I can't remember. Yeah, yeah. hit us up. Love her. <laughs> <laughs> you sound really great. Yeah, she was really cool. 
<laughs> I saw this movie in high school. Um, one of my friends was like, we were obsessed with David Bowie. And one of my friends was like, oh my God, I just watched this movie <laughs> and you have to watch it. And ever since then, it's been, I'm just really excited to do this movie because it is one of my absolute all-time favorite movies Same. and i feel like i say that about every movie on the podcast <laughs> and like but, but this time i meet it yeah <laughs> it's genuinely i mean i've like modeled my entire aesthetic and life around this movie i, I feel yeah, like <laughs> it's like informed so many things in my life just in terms of like music and art and lighting design and like everything that i love in terms of like art and aesthetics like, and i feel I, like can yeah. kind of come from this i totally see that in your work as well like really heavily when you said you wanted to do this movie i was like of course <laughs> that makes so much sense so uh like I, like we said it's directed by tony scott yes and ridley scott's younger brother absolutely and uh catherine deneuve gorgeous as mm -hmm. miriam blaylock mm -hmm. susan sarandon and as as her new consort mm -hmm. vampire consort and david bowie as uh miriam's lover and it's based on a book by whitley stryber have you read the book no i did not even know that it was based off a book until i started doing research it's really good podcast, so. it's re I, you've read it before yeah I really like it. I read it last year around this time. Uh, the movie, just a side kind of fun fact, is edited by Pamela Power. Shout out to women editors, mm -hmm. right? And I didn't know that. Yeah, she also did Legend, and which is another movie I love, and G.I. Jane. Cool. And the gorgeous costumes... <laughs> Uh, by Milena Cananero, who's an Oscar winner, and she's really prolific. And she did the costumes for Marie Antoinette, many Wes Anderson films, which whatever, I kind of hate Wes Anderson. And also like hate Wes Anderson. Yeah. Passion. I don't need to like go on that tangent. I, I feel like every goth hates Wes Anderson. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, Chariots of Fire and A Clockwork Orange, which is really cool. It's awesome. And even, she was so, she's so dedicated to her craft that uh, one day on filming The Hunger, she disappeared, was nowhere to be found, and it was discovered eventually that she had flown to Rome to purchase fabric for a handkerchief David Bowie was supposed to wear in the movie. Wow, I have so much respect for that. I know. <laughs> it's like some shit that I would do. Right. And <laughs> if she, I had the money to do so. Absolutely. <laughs> and she was unable to find the fabric in London, so she flew all the way to Rome at her own expense. Wow. And bought the fabric instead. Wow. I feel like she's a Sagittarius. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the art direction was by Clinton Cavers, who's also really prolific and did films like Alien, Pink Floyd's The Wall, Quest for Fire. And I know you were saying you really love the art direction in this movie. Yeah. And also Alien is one of my favorite films. So, so that makes a lot of sense. I think that's really great that, yeah, there's like a connection between the two. Yeah. David Bowie actually learned how to play the cello for this movie. Impressive. Amazing. <laughs> and he also said that in order to make his voice suitably hoarse for when he ages so drastically in the movie, he stood on the George Washington Bridge every night and <laughs> screamed all the punk rock songs he knew. I'm sure there was a lot that he yeah. knew, too. <laughs> it's so fucking good. I love that. I wish I was just driving by when that happened. And then David Bowie is just screaming into the night <laughs> yeah. off the George Washington Bridge. Like a dead boy song. Yes. It's so good. 
I this every when I was doing research for this movie, I was just like, I love this even more than I thought I did. Mm. I mean, just the pure dedication to it. Yeah. And it was it did not get good reviews. No, it, it got terrible out. reviews. Yeah, because people just didn't understand. I mean, I can kind of understand why it got terrible reviews. There's definitely some like messy plot points and parts of the film that like don't totally make sense. Um, and it's really like visually driven, but not so much in terms of like the script or like the character development. Um, I, w- I was doing research on the director and I guess he got his start working in uh, like commercial advertising mm. and music videos. Yeah. So he was very much coming from a place of like just caring about style and less about like actual substance of whatever right. message he was trying to like sell to his audience. And I feel like you can kind of see that when you watch this film that he was just so enamored by like lighting and cinematography and editing that like there are parts of the film that just sort of like fall flat. Yeah. Like his priorities were just different. Yeah. <laughs> compared to other filmmakers. It's true. So, yeah. And I mean, the book to be honest, has much stronger plot, yeah, obviously. Sure. Um, there's a few key differences in the book. Like, for example, uh, the relationship with Alice is a lot more fleshed out. Mm-hmm. Um, and the ending is super different. Yeah. Like, Miriam doesn't die okay. the, at the end of the book actually everybody else dies and she I like that so much yeah, better exactly and she just goes on to like live more years wow. and there's a sequel called the last vampire which is about a detective trying to find her wow yeah so uh there's a book called The Celluloid, or there's a documentary and a book called The, the Celluloid Closet, which I reference a lot on this podcast. And uh, it's a book documentary from 1995, and it's about the history of homosexuality in film. And Susan Sarandon said that in the screenplay for The Hunger, she, for the sex scene that they filmed, which by the way, they had to film on a, uh, Susan Sarandon insisted they film on a closed set. Yeah, I guess they filmed it in like a, um, like a auto garage. Or oh, something. okay, cool. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, uh, it originally called for her to be demonstrably drunk <laughs> in the lead-up scene to her <laughs> sex scene with Catherine Deneuve, but Sarandon asked for it to be changed so that her character had only a single sip of wine and then spilled the rest of the glass because she wanted to make it clear that her character was choosing to have sex with Miriam instead of doing it because of the alcohol. And also because you wouldn't have to quote, you wouldn't have to get drunk to bed Catherine Deneuve. I don't care what your sexual history to that point had <laughs> yes. been. So I just love also that. true. Yeah. I mean, I feel like this could be a very, you know, there's, when we talk about queer film, there's like textual and then there's subtextual mm-hmm. representations of queerness. And this is very textual. Like mm. it's there in the movie mm-hmm. without ever it, but it's never explicitly spoken about and it could easily be very I hate this word but problematic yeah but I think that that choice of Susan Sarandon insisting that it be this really consensual scene right she also comes on to her like super hard too yeah like the, the piano scene yes the sex scene exactly so. yeah. yeah amazing yeah David Bowie was intimidated by Catherine Deneuve, but he got on really easily with Susan Sarandon. Mm. 
The movie is set in New York, but nearly all of it was shot in London. And in an interview with the Daily Beast in July 2014, Susan Sarandon revealed oh that God. she had an affair with David Bowie <laughs> while they were working on this film. Wow. I want to be in the middle of that sandwich. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Wow. I know. Oh, so good. I wish I also I wish that they all three of them had, had an affair. I mean, maybe they did. And it's just like not public knowledge. Yeah. They're like, Catherine won't let us talk about yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this was Tony Scott's first theatrical feature. The film also spurred a short-lived TV series of the same name, The Hunger, which ran for three years, which I had no idea about. I didn't know about that either yeah. until I was searching to watch the movie. And you can watch the second season of The Hunger on Amazon Prime. I got it. And do- David Bowie hosts it. Apparently. <gasps> Okay, that's what I'm doing. Yeah, I have no idea that I don't know if it's good or anything. Probably not. Yeah, but but it's on Amazon. So if you're interested in that, check it out. The series broadcast 14 years after the movie and had the same title, same kind of vampire lore, but had no plot or character connections to the film. Ridley Scott was supposed to direct this film, but decided to pass when he heard that David Bowie was in on the deal. (laughs) Why? I don't know. I wonder what the story is there. Yeah, maybe David Bowie was hard to work with. I mean, I I wouldn't judge him for it. (laughs) Yeah, I could see that, though. And the makeup artist, Anthony Clavette, who was famous within the fashion world for his work in Italian Vogue, was also brought onto the project after he was introduced to the director by the costumer, Melina Cannonero. So I don't typically talk about the costumers and the makeup artists unless it's really worth noting. Mm-hmm. And I feel like in this film, it's, it's absolutely really worth really worth Because that's, like you were saying, the plot is not super complicated yeah it's the plot is not really the focus of the movie no it's It's really not extremely aesthetic yeah it's like eye candy it's It's like an hour and a half of just like beautiful 80s goth eye candy i know whenever people tell me like oh i didn't really like the plot i'm like you're missing the point supposed to yeah you're missing you're missing the point (laughs) completely it's not about that for me at all right same so now, is there anything else from your notes that you wanted to talk about to the history of the film? Um, maybe not necessarily like the history of the film, but I think something that I find really interesting or an interesting way of thinking about this film in particular is when you're sort of thinking about it within the context of what was happening in the 1980s at the time and maybe like why this film was so stylized and like why there's such like a heavy hand in terms of like like subculture in it like goth subculture is like so blatant in this film absolutely um and i think it's informed by everything else that was sort of happening politically and economically and just within pop culture at that time um I don't know if you want me to get into that now. Yeah, get into it. <laughs> but we get can like into it. break down some scenes um, oh, that, that kind of okay. like relate back to that. But I think just like a couple of important, important notes about other things that were happening at the time um, was that Ronald Reagan had just been elected in 1981. And so he sort of like introduced Reaganomics to the country and it had this like dramatic shift on the economic Um, wealth of this country and so I feel like the 80s were really a time of like excess 
like the wage gap just became so extreme. And so I think you can see that in a lot of the pop culture that was coming out of like the early to mid 80s where people were making films and writing songs that were about just like being wealthy and like being opulent and being excessive. And this entire film is that like in a nutshell it is very opulent it is very excessive yeah vampires are very opulent and very excessive so i feel like all of those things kind of tie together and then also within the film a lot of the like vampire mythology is less like magical in the way that other vampire films are and it's more scientific and it talks about it as if it's more of a disease which I think is interesting given that like the AIDS epidemic was starting to happen in the early 80s too and so this film sort of like isn't like directly referencing that but if that's just something that's sort of happening within the political landscape at the time I could understand why that would maybe have some sort of like low-key influences into like why this film got made in the first place or why certain people were drawn to it in the first place absolutely so yeah no that's a very and it's something i've heard other people talk about in relation to this film Mm -hmm. is vampirism is kind of a symbol for the aids epidemic Mm -hmm. and the aids epidemic at this point wasn't really in full swing yet this is 1983 yeah so it's pre that but this is the case in many things that we talk about on this podcast it's it's not so much that it's quote unquote intentional as it is interesting to look back on it as a harbinger of what's to come right and like you were saying why this got it was like a it was the zeitgeist moment like it was the perfect time to to do this movie right and my uh my internet friend her name is the brooklyn art historian on instagram and her, her name is shauna she wrote a paper about the costumes in this movie and related it back to the symbols of the AIDS epidemic at that time. Even though it's not intentional, they line up very well. Mm. And uh, I highly recommend, well, I don't think that paper is available for the public, but it's, I mean, I would love to read that. Yeah. I'm sure. Do it somewhere. Absolutely. I'm sure she would be happy to share it. Uh, And maybe she'll have a, uh, a link I can put in my Patreon for anybody else who wants to read it. It's really good. And she also talks about the costumes in the movie Dracula in Bram Stoker's Dracula from cool. the 90s. Love that movie as well. <laughs> uh, and the other paper that I read for this is um, that I sent to you is about uh, urban va- representations of urban vampires in the films of the 80s and 90s. And I will the name of the author is escaping me at the moment but again you'll have I think to it's sub- Stacy Abbott Stacy Abbott is that right yes absolutely that is right <laughs> Great. yeah and i'm going to link that in my patreon as well and i really liked that paper because she talks about the differences between representations of vampires in new york and vampires in la mm-hmm. and there's cuz we talked about i talked about on this podcast the lost boys before so that was really interesting to me and one of the big differences is that in vampire movies that are set in new york the word vampire is never uttered right the mythology is totally different yeah the mythology is totally different and the vampires are lone vampires Mm. or with one other person whereas in movies that are vampire movies set in la there's like a whole pack of vampires or vampire gangs right and new york 
is the kind of the perfect setup for that lone vampire uh, because it's a very lonely, gloomy city. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we're here right now in this lonely so city. So we're New York vampires? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I definitely relate more to representations of New York vampires. And in New York, films that are set in New York in general, Stacy talks about in the paper, is are heavily influenced by like avant-garde art experimental mm. scenes that come out of New York, whereas vampire movies set in LA are very heavily influenced by Hollywood, right. which is just a very different aesthetic and right. a very different messaging. So I thought that was worth noting. So now we'll start to talk about the plot. So we open in this film with perhaps the most iconic opening of all time. Best opening of any film ever. Ever made (laughs) to this day. Yeah. And it's Bauhaus performing international goth anthem, (laughs) Bella Lugosi's Dead. And the, the interesting thing about this song being right in the beginning of the movie is that it's a nod to the vampiric themes very cheekily because the word vampire is never actually uttered. Mm. So it's it's kind of setting you up to, to know that this is about vampires without actually ever saying it directly. And Tony Scott discovered Bauhaus in a London nightclub and decided to put them in the movie. Wow. Oh. And Bauhaus is one of my all-time favorite bands. So, uh, and I, I believe I was introduced to them actually through this movie. Really? Yeah. So. Love that. Oh, it's just the best club scene ever. Take me to this club. I know. It's, like, why doesn't that exist here in New York? I not anymore. Uh, I always kind of thought I'm gonna grow up and then I'm gonna go to these goth clubs. And then by the You're time, like, I'm, right, it's not 1986 anymore. So exactly, it's not an option. There's actually this goth musician named Voltaire. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but he has this book that I read in high school about goth. It's like a it's a comedy book, but it's about kind of his experience being goth in New York. And he says that at one point, like it was 1995 and he hadn't seen any other goths for like weeks. And oh, he saw this, this lonely goth. goth. Exactly. And he saw this goth in the street and like came up to her and was like, where are our kind? Where have we gone? Oh. So I, uh, I love that. Me, yeah. It's like me every time I see another queer person in the room. I'm like, you, you, yeah, exactly. Or especially like a leather queer, right? Like where you can tell with the certain sim- symbols that right. they wear. So this is where we first see David Bowie and Catherine Deneuve cruising a goth couple from across the club. I just love that sentence. Yeah. Right. The absolute best. Goth cruising. Goth cruising. (laughs) And Miriam and John are really elegant, which contrasts with the kind of rough punk couple. And Shauna also writes about this in her paper, the Mm. difference between their appearances in that scene. They seduce the couple. They bring them um, are, do they go to the couple's house or do they go to their house? I couldn't tell. And then when I was reading an article that someone wrote about this film, apparently they went to Long Island. 
Oh, they do in the in the book. They're in Long Island. Oh, okay. Yeah, I just yeah. didn't know if that was so, which is over. where this couple lives, like okay. Long Island punks. I guess that makes sense. <laughs> Does it right, a little bit? <laughs> <laughs> That's how they could afford that apartment. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and they seduce them. There's all these uh, parallel edits uh, with shots of monkeys in cages freaking out as they uh, seduce and murder this couple. Right. They, I feel like it's important to note just like the the editing style that they sort of present to the audience at this moment because that's like a reoccurring thing that happens throughout the film, which is one of my like favorite parts about this film. Just like as an editor, I get really nerdy about the way that they sort of structured things. Absolutely. And there's these like quick, uh, like m- they're not quite montages because a montage would sort of allude to like a sequence of events happening sequentially yeah it's this parallel like, cutting yeah, yeah it's parallel cutting or it's like just it quick cuts to like abstract images that don't necessarily relate to anything else that's right. happening or they'll cut that in with like flashbacks which isn't parallel but it's like someone maybe daydreaming or just like visual cues to let us know what else is happening and like one of the characters minds at that time um so I just think that's like a really interesting way to sort of like structure a film. And within the first like three minutes, we see that. Yeah. And it's you're right. It's present throughout the entire film. That style. I love it, too. And it's so aesthetic. And yeah. Like, even though like really jarring like audio cuts, too, because even if you watch other like montage sequences in films, usually they try and like blend the audio so it feels more seamless. And with here or with this film, it's just so harsh between cuts which i love love it's it like very jarring. especially with these monkeys right and <laughs> <laughs> the monkeys are just screaming and freaking out in these cages and killing each other yeah killing each other and that is really powerful cut with the scene of uh them murdering this couple right because it's uh, like this nod to the primal sexuality and danger element that's running through the whole film mirror you go ahead it's also a bit of foreshadowing too because the disease that sarah or susan sarandon's character is researching at her day job is the same we don't know if it's actually the same disease or if it's something similar to what makes miriam a vampire in the first place yes kind of like bloodthirsty like ravenous type behavior and so seeing these monkeys kind of like kill one another at the same time that Miriam and David Bowie's character John right John mm-hmm. John are also like seducing and like killing someone kind of like creates like a parallel thing happening between them yes absolutely Miriam also uses this great onk dagger she has around her neck to slit the throats of her prey so right this, this is the first time we see the onk dagger yeah nobody has fangs in this film no yeah they kill each other with with an onk yes <laughs> yeah because Miriam Blaylock is uh supposed to be a- an ancient Egyptian right except she's white well, except she's so, white like, this is so real cringy. doesn't make sense yeah, at all there's a really cringy scene later on where she's dressed oh, in like an Egyptian so headdress cringy <laughs> really could have done without that yeah. and in, yeah. in the in the book she's also she's also white in the book and ancient Egyptian which makes a no, white ancient Egyptian yeah it okay. doesn't it doesn't make any sense <laughs> at all 
we meet Susan Sarandon, Sarah, and she's a scientist who's working with these monkeys. Mm. And she's basically trying to find the key to immortality using the monkeys as test subjects. The city of New York also in this movie is like I mentioned earlier is kind of a character despite the film not actually being shot there. Mm -hmm. Uh, And again, it just, it, it's so essential to the plot that they're in New York. I feel like, I don't know. How do you feel about that? I mean, I think because at no point do they actually say that they're in Mm -hmm. New York, but there's just enough visual cues to like allude to that right um yeah i don't know i haven't really like dissected like new york as a character in this film but i could also it's also possible that i'm blending the book and the film together Mm. too because they're so intertwined for me now that i've read the book and Mm. new york landscape is mentioned a lot more oh, in really? the book than in this film. I mean, there's some really beautiful, like, wide shots that they get of, like, cityscapes in this film. Right. So they really try and, like, drive that in, that, like, this is, like, an urban landscape. Is, like, this yeah. is New York City. Yeah, exactly. So we see Miriam and John in their elegant New York townhouse. Their most beautiful mansion. Yes. <laughs> which in the book, I believe, is on the west side. And exactly. And it looks like it's constantly filled with smoke. (laughs) (laughs) Fog machine. Everything is always foggy. Yes. There's always billowing curtains. Always. Every scene. Yeah. It is always the same time of day in every scene because the shadows never change. Yes. It's the same kind of like like low sun like coming through like vertical blinds type lighting in every single scene yes um the curtains are always blowing in directions that don't actually make sense in relation to where the windows are yes (laughs) it doesn't but also like i don't care i'm like still here for it honestly the whole thing could not care less fantastical just in terms of like you know the set design it's like not realistic in any not way. at all yeah and you, the atmosphere is just so thick and there's also a really strong classical music presence in this film it's like classical music and then like heavy synth yes and like that's it <laughs> which you know move great yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah sarah is back at the lab struggling with her monkeys <laughs> <laughs> they're getting sick they're aging rapidly they're turning on each other also, I love her hair. That was another note I have here. Super 80s. Super 80s, short haircut. Mm-hmm. The scene is also parallel cut with images of John, so which leads us to assume that he's sick in the way that the monkeys are sick. Right. And he also has a memory, was one of my favorite shots of him and Miriam in the 1700s pledging their themselves to They're each like other. They're like wedding night is what I yeah. assume that to be. Yeah. Well, in the book, very interesting. Really spoiling the book for people. <laughs> so, you know, if if you want to read it, <laughs> don't fast forward. <laughs> but he, in the book, she comes, he's a, like a nobleman mm. and he lives with his family on this estate. And Miriam is a sex worker who his father hires and oh. then John ends up falling in love with her and she is like chooses him to be wow. her next it's so much they kept that in the film yeah me too me too I, I mean it's really um 
it had described in detail in the book you get a lot more of john in the book as well and who he is and interesting his thought yeah, process he's kind of like a flat character mm-hmm. all the men in this film are almost like non-entities <laughs> yeah exactly yeah yeah he's definitely way more of a character and you also get a lot of pov of him in his box as well oh. <laughs> it's really, really fucked up uh if you've if you've seen the movie already, you know what's coming. <laughs> Miriam is watching an interview that Sarah's doing on TV and is immediately drawn to her. Miriam's musical protege, Alice, comes over and her and John, uh, they all play music together. And it's not clear in the movie, but again, in the book, Miriam, this is very creepy. Miriam is grooming this girl to be her next companion. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, so that I've never read the book and I didn't even think that that would be like a, an option in the narrative until again I was doing research on this and then saw that written down in an article and was just like, oh, it's so creepy. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah, she's, like, she's 12. Well, because she thinks that John is going to die about when Alice is like in her early 20s. She doesn't think that... She wasn't trying to make like a baby vampire. No, no. She doesn't... She just thought she had more time with him. So... still really creepy. It's of course... It's very creepy. Yeah. And so she's grooming her to be her next companion because she knows John is going to get sick and die just like all the other lovers. And the lovers don't know that. (laughs) No, she blatantly lies to them. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And... Yeah, I mean, it's just a very unsettling element of the plot here. And it's also, I mean, her alternating between men and women is also interesting Hmm. and is very present in the book as well. Um, Like she actually alternates back and forth, back and forth. mm -hmm. It's not just like whoever. No, it's not whoever she feels. She's like, I got like 300 years with this man, like 300 with this woman. Exactly. Yeah. Interesting. Yes. (laughs) I don't know what to make of that. Very <laughs> upsetting representation of bisexuality. But, uh, no, that's not how all bisexuals approach relationships. <laughs> a and B, they rotate. Right. Um, so John is getting sicker and weaker and he's aging more rapidly each day. Miriam goes to Sarah's book signing in a fabulous outfit. And, uh, oh, I do want to note um, that... At this point in the film, Sarah and Miriam have not interacted with one another yet, but Miriam continues to kind of like watch Sarah from surveillance cameras and surveillance cameras also have like a reoccurring theme throughout this film. And um, I like wrote a note at some point about how surveillance cameras are kind of like like a way to illustrate like a modern day predator, like Ooh. someone tracking prey. Cause she's always like being a voyeur in the way that she's watching Sarah, either like through the curtains or through the medium of like a CTV through surveillance or when she's Love watching that. Sarah, like on that interview show talking about her book, like that's the first time that she sees Sarah for the first time. And so we quite, kind of like, see that happen throughout the entire film love that observation yeah Yeah. and then also the film ends with i mean we don't have to jump far ahead but just like side note sarah at the very end of the film ends up kind of like watching someone else through the curtains 
You right. Kind of see like a, a switch happen in terms of like who their characters are. So. Right. Well, if you haven't seen The Hunger, pause this immediately and <laughs> yeah. go watch it because it's one of the best vampire movies ever made. <laughs> Despite me ragging on some of the <laughs> unsavory elements here, yeah. it really is a gorgeous, gorgeous film. So it, she's in this fabulous outfit. This is the first time they interact mm-hmm. at Sarah's book signing. She's got this hat with a veil. She's got a salamander brooch. <laughs> I wonder what the symbolism of the salamander is. And Sarah is smitten with her immediately. And this is another theme that's in a lot of vampire movies. Is this person actually smitten with the vampire? Or is this mm, the vampire like under the spell? spell? Exactly. And this is something I talk about a lot. And I'm actually working on a, a paper essay about this, about the connection between codependent abuse and vampire mythology. And oh, this film films. is super codependent. Yeah, absolutely. Me forever and ever. Yeah, <laughs> like, I that's mean, your vow. Pretty much every vampire movie is super codependent because yeah. it's this vamp- vampiric figure feeding off of the energy <laughs> of this other person by necessity. Yeah. And there's also always a, a, a consensual issue in vampire movies like is the person being seduced genuinely you know act erotically activated by this person or is this a spell is Mm -hmm. this miriam's spell over her i mean and as we see in the ending of this film they kind of like you know answer that question just with how sarah sort of handles her turning right at the end of the film right yeah yeah uh John interrogates Miriam about his illness. How long does he have left? How long did her other lovers last? Who will replace him? And Miriam has an agonized vision of another former lover calling out her name. And we see this other lover in kind of, uh, in in the book, it's ancient Rome. Mm. So it's kind of that, that atmosphere in this flashback. I love the flashbacks in this movie. It's so... I don't even know how to describe it. It's very, like, ancient and also completely of the time. <laughs> so 80s. Yeah, still. it's so 80s. It's yeah. like an 80s music video about ancient Rome. <laughs> yeah. So, again, I was saying Miriam alternates between male and female lovers every hundreds of years until they die from a mysterious illness that Miriam is tr- actively trying to learn how to cure. And she thinks that Sarah is the key to learning how to cure this illness. So vampirism in the, the mythology here is it's more of a, it's like something that we could all have access to. We just don't because we're not using our brains to our full capacity, basically. Mm-hmm. In the book, they go into more detail. Like Miriam is actually a separate race. So John, she's not like turning these people into her race. Is that why they get sick and she doesn't? Exactly. Yeah. So she's, they, they depend on her to live again, very extremely codependent, but they're not actually the same as her. Mm. It's like, it's in more detail in the book, but still very vague. Of course, John goes to Sarah's clinic He's aging rapidly now at this point, and he goes to her clinic and demands help. So he can be out in the day also. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the 
They can also look in mirrors too. They can also kind of really beautiful camera shots of reflections of characters kind of like looking in mirrors and seeing things behind them and whatnot. Yes. That's also not included in the the mythology. Exactly. Vampires. Right. He insists that he's a young man. And this is another theme I kind of wanted to talk about is the vampire and narcissism. Uh, This, I mean, the, the reason a lot of people in vampire films and lore are the ideals appealing to them is that they get to stay young forever. And John is learning quickly that he's, it's go, it's catching up with him at this point. Right. And I thought this, the dialogue here was just very interesting how he's insisting I'm a young man. He's not. No, he's, he's been like alive. 400 years yeah, old. <laughs> exactly. He's been alive for hundreds of years, but is still insisting that he's this young man i just mm. thought that spoke very much to the 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 arrested development that happens with in vampire films mm. with i i keep talking about i have to keep saying films because i keep thinking like with vampires like they're <laughs> yeah. real i mean yeah <laughs> i mean i i don't know i don't want to out myself or anything but <laughs> sarah does not believe him john is not doing too hot he is aging rapidly right before our eyes and so are the monkeys at the same time. <laughs> and John is in the bathroom at one point and he looks oh, in I the mirror. It's really good. It's also super gay. It's very gay. He looks in the like mirror. Cruising this like young yes, boy. Yes. Young shirtless boy for some yes. reason. Okay. That was, I was like, why is this guy shirtless <laughs> in this clinic bathroom? And he, John is now like 80 years old. And there's this young man next to him who's shirtless. And he's staring at this bot guy's body and studying him. And it's a, there's a moment where he's longing to be that again. But also, like, consume it. Yeah, Which is just, like, the gayest feeling ever. Absolutely. I mean, I talk about that so much on this podcast. Like, do I want to be you or, or do like, I fuck you? Or fuck or maybe you. maybe both. <laughs> exactly. Which is just a, the ultimate gay feeling. <laughs> right. And it's just a very, very queer moment. He He's lusting for this man's youth and his blood and he contemplates killing him but another man walks in and interrupts also the shirtless man sees john like cruising him and is like what the fuck <laughs> like, <laughs> uh and i mean oh, yeah i wrote a note he's hungry horny and distraught yes absolutely <laughs> yeah and he's like this creepy old man now <laughs> yeah. i mean that also speaks to a very gay sensibility especially with gay men of you know being this hot young thing and at your height and then all of a sudden aging and mm-hmm. then people looking at you like what you're like this old man yeah exactly yeah, yeah I, re- I can't remember where i pulled it from but there was some article that i was reading about this and someone wrote a line about how eternal or everlasting life is not everlasting youth mm-hmm. or eternal life is not eternal youth and so despite the fact that like Miriam's lovers get to live forever. They're not technically young forever. Yeah, she didn't lie. Youth forever. Exactly. (laughs) Like they're just, you know, decaying in a box, but they're still alive forever. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God. That was like interesting. Yeah. No, it's interesting. Yeah, it is. John is in agony. He's starved for blood. He runs into Sarah and leaves angry and. Um, Sarah now sees how much he's aged in the last hour and believes him and tries to run after him, but he leaves. Okay. Amazing. And then the best film ever, or the best scene ever. Uh, roller skating punk <laughs> sequence. <laughs> yeah. 
There is a young punk <laughs> roller with a mullet with a mullet in tight light wash denim roller skating in a tunnel <laughs> in a tunnel with fog backlit by blue lights in slow motion it's in what could either be a pigeon or a dove i wanted to say that it's a dove yeah <laughs> flies by in slow-mo it's insane <laughs> and there's a boom box and i don't know what song is playing but it sounds like just some typical 80s like death rock song yes it's such a good scene yeah <laughs> John attacks the punk roller skater, but he's too weak to kill him. And back at the house, Alice, the young girl, stops by to leave something for Miriam. And she, John is there, but she doesn't recognize him because he's so old now. The scene is very creepy. Yeah, it really like, is. Very predatory. And it makes me deeply uncomfortable. Yeah, we don't even see John's face for most of it. They sort of like allude to how much he's aged through either showing just his silhouette against a wall or he's sort of like masked by a curtain or by like a really deep shadow where we only see his eyes which just sort of adds to like the creepy like voyeur thing that's happening of him just sort of like preying on this young girl absolutely and the makeup is really good the old age makeup yeah uh, the practical effects here very good um and it's a very deeply uncomfortable scene. I believe it is on purpose. I believe we are supposed to recall uh, the the creepy predatory elements here mm-hmm. and of the of old preying on. Just wait for that to go by. Sorry, I live on a very busy street and there's a lot of sirens. You know what? Honestly, fuck it. We're in New York. We're not in the studio today. I'm actually recording in Lainey's apartment. So, you know, you'll live. Right. (laughs) Listeners. Um, It's of uh, what I was going to say of age preying on preying on the young preying on youth preying on naivete because Alice is so trusting and naive of she doesn't even know who this is he says it's there he's a friend of John and Miriam just like such a creep creep pickup line it's so creepy I mean it's just it's such a typical creep pickup line that I believe that this all has to be very intentional and very much meant to disturb and and creep us out and it's very successful (laughs) right uh and she says, are you sure you're not John's father? It's just horrible. So John kills Alice. And I think, you know, of all of the violence in this movie, this is the, the only time that it really upsets me. Because you're watching a young girl. Yeah, because she's like 12. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Miriam. And it also, but they did shoot it really beautifully. It's though. gorgeous. Yes. Like it starts with her playing a violin solo. Mm. And then the music shifts. And then it's just a series of like those really quick cuts again of just like tight close ups and kind of like like macro shots of things happening. So they don't they don't show it explicitly. They kind of just show like little bits of it. Um, but yeah, it's still very uncomfortable. But just from a technical standpoint, it's really gorgeous. Well, I mean, I also the, the other thing is just because I'm I, I'm saying it's it's horrible and uncomfortable doesn't mean that I don't think it's good and that right. it's not necessary to the film. Right. It absolutely is. I think it's very I think it like I said, I think it's meant to be uncomfortable and I think it's very successful in that. And it's very successful in being kind of the only very disturbing scene mm-hmm. in the movie. And it also shows that he is so weak that the only 
person he can prey on is somebody who can't fight back. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Which is uh, very indicative of of a predator. Right. Which is what he is now or what he's always been, but is it's escalating. Uh, Miriam gets home and uh, she's wearing a great outfit in the scene. She's by wearing, the way. yes, it's very like film noir. Yes, what oh she's God. wearing. I mean, the costumes on this beautiful. Just everything. <laughs> they're they're everything. Right. Like I just every I I've seen this movie. A million times, and every time Miriam comes on screen with a new You're just outfit, like, oh, I guess. Wow. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, David Bowie's outfits are great too. Like everybody looks amazing. Um, Miriam gets home, and John begs Miriam to kiss him <laughs> and think of him as he was. And Miriam kisses him, and she has a vision of when they met, and and she begins to cry as they kiss and it's horrible and grotesque (laughs) because John at this point is like he's so decrepit he's so decrepit he's basically a corpse yeah Yeah. oh also David Bowie's old acting kills me (laughs) (laughs) so it's very painful but it's also pretty funny (laughs) he we just know he's I mean we know it's David Bowie in old makeup right and he begs for death and Mir- repeatedly repeatedly <laughs> and miriam says she can't kill him uh miriam finds alice's camera because she was always taking insta stacks and guesses that john killed her john is now basically completely a corpse she it's also funny because at one point she's like putting Alice's stuff into um, a furnace. She's putting Alice's body is what yeah. I read that oh, as. Because okay. yeah, that's where they like bring their like victims. Yes. Because we didn't see her body. So I was getting a little confused. But yeah, yeah. But they show that um, like incinerator in the first scene. Yes. With that like goth couple that they killed. And right. It's like the. So that's where they put the their tight bodies. shot of like all the flames. So. Yes. Yeah. So she's putting Alice's body in the fr- in the incinerator. And John like appears in the doorway and is like, kill me. <laughs> Burning a child. Yeah, it's really perverse. She would be laughing. <laughs> I mean, it's extremely perverse. You have to laugh because it's like so awful. And it's also so dramatic. It's too. so dramatic, yes. And John is, he's completely withered at this point. She, Miriam carries him in her arms. I actually love this scene. She carries him in her arms into an elevator and she whispers to him that their kind do not die like humans do. Right. There is no letting go, no rest. They simply grow too weak and they stay mentally conscious and aware as their body dies and decays. It's horrifying. (laughs) I mean, it's. I had somebody say to me recently that this movie isn't a horror movie and I was like are you kidding me that that is the it's horrific that that concept right it's hard for me to even think about because it's so it's pure horror right and the way that she whispers to him too like it's so loving and then she's done it so many times yeah exactly she has a a routine right and a ritual for it and she carries John all the way up a spiral staircase into an attic. The most beautiful attic yep. ever also. Yes. It's so gorgeous. <laughs> There's it's like a-, a skylight. And then again with the billowing curtains, 
with wind that's not actually coming from any specific direction. Yes. And there's like the doves the skylight everywhere. Is, yeah. So many doves. <laughs> there, the skylight is like an oculus. Right. Like a circle eye in the middle of the ceiling. And it's just there's fog everywhere of course (laughs) and this attic is basically a spooky vampire mausoleum (laughs) for all of her exes for all of her exes we get this really beautiful shot it's like a pieta moment with miriam and john before she seals him in a coffin Mm -hmm. surrounded by her dead but conscious lovers (laughs) doomed for eternity to be first she introduces introduces, john yeah she introduces they're doomed for eternity to be conscious in a corpse body and all of their coffins also are indicative of the time that they lived in which is interesting Hmm. like john is in a modern coffin modern 80s coffin and then somebody else is in like a ancient sarcophagus Hmm. Uh, she speaks to her other lovers in their coffins and asks them to comfort John. <laughs> to keep him company. To keep him company. This is truly horrible. <laughs> like, imagine being surrounded by your exes, your girlfriend's exes, in an attic for in all eternity. <laughs> for the rest of your life. Yeah. What a nightmare. <laughs> so, do we think that these exes <laughs> actually can't die? Or do we think that them being alive is somehow connected to Miriam's power? Well, I mean, just to jump ahead, when Miriam sort of meets her demise at the end, then all of her exes then like literally fall apart. Right. Like then they're able to like actually die right. once she's gone. So maybe right. it is like a, yeah. a life force thing where yeah. they're only kept alive because she's alive. Right. And if or she maybe would just like, kill herself, they would all be released. Right. Or I have a feeling that like maybe she would have the power to kill them, but she doesn't want to. That's like the sense she that wants I get. to keep them alive. That's the sense that I got. Yeah, yeah. That she just she's like I just can't. She just can't let him go. Yeah, exactly. Because she also insists that she deeply loves all of them right. forever. Oof, it's so creepy. <laughs> so Sarah shows up at Miriam's and begs to see John, but Miriam says he went to Switzerland. A detective also shows up looking for Alice. This is when we see Miriam um, has, and he comes and goes. His, I'm so not interested in the detective subplot at all. No, it's yeah. kind of pointless. It's really pointless. It becomes in the sequel to The Last Vampire, it's a whole thing. Mm. But uh, on this, I don't really care. Uh, we see Miriam has this beautiful garden. She senses Sarah about to get run over telepathically. <laughs> And communicates with her and Sarah steps out of the way of the truck. So we see that they're connected. Mm. It's very- did you see that as, as Miriam saving her? I did. What about okay. you? I, I sort of saw it as like Sarah almost getting hit by a truck because she's under Miriam's spell. Like she's just oh. so like confused. Because when That's she shows up at the door, she does ask for like, where is John? And then she's kind of frazzled and she's like, I don't know why I'm here. Is that yes. the right scene? Is that what I'm thinking? No, of? yeah, because it's a few, like a few things happen. So Sarah comes and goes. Oh, this is when she gives Miriam her number and yes. then leaves. Yes, and then leaves and then the detective comes and goes. Got you. Okay. And then we see. I jumped too far ahead. No, no, no. no. Yeah, <laughs> and then we see Miriam in her garden and she's like cutting flowers. Right. And then she like activates, like perks up and she has this. T- 
telepathic vision of Sarah almost getting run over by a truck. Interesting. So that was kind of my thought was that they're connected now Mm. in however non-consensually they've (laughs) they've connected but miriam is like in her head now right i definitely saw it yeah but like sarah was under her spell right so sarah is at home with her useless boyfriend (laughs) i think i literally wrote the same thing oh my god that's very very gay of us (laughs) i don't even know his name Oh, it's I, like I forget. Bob that. or like it's Tom, something useless. Or Bob, <laughs> like mediocre cis man name. I, I think it is Bob. <laughs> I feel like God. it is. It's probably not. <laughs> <laughs> it's irrelevant. He's like he's irrelevant. Oh my God, he has such a bigger part in the book, and it's maddening because who cares? And there's like more pov from him in the mm. book and i'm like oh don't my care. god i could i almost skipped those chapters i was like <laughs> okay anyway um <laughs> and he he's she's with her boyfriend in her weird neon apartment the bathroom is amazing in yeah. the scene it also makes no sense that anybody would have a bathroom with like royal blue lighting it's insane but it's gorgeous on film yeah it is gorgeous for it well and it's also like sarah's apartment is like very 80s and Mm. miriam's apartment is very of no time and place right like sarah's wardrobe is also very 80s yes like giant shoulder pads pantsuit type thing i mean her hair (laughs) yeah like feathered like teased hair oh it's so good and her apartment is also very smoky (laughs) every apartment (laughs) every apartment is smoky everywhere sarah cannot stop thinking about miriam so she goes over to miriam's house and we get to see more of miriam's gorgeous home Sarah is smitten with her there's a lot of lesbian tension there is so good oh sarah has also hallucinated like seeing miriam at multiple times up until this point yeah also like hallucinates that uh miriam calls her at work and like picks up the phone and her coworker is like sarah nobody called she's like really i thought the phone rang oh i completely forgot about that oh yeah so she's like infected by her right and again it's very vague as to if this is miriam's doing or if sarah is genuinely just like enamored enamored and obsessed with her uh sarah asks there so some some sexy things happen with the piano (laughs) (laughs) miriam is playing the piano sarah asks miriam if she's hitting on her well first she asks uh what song oh yeah is being performed because miriam is sitting at the the piano playing a song and so sarah asks like what piece is that? And uh, Miriam tells this narrative of an Indian princess who owned a female slave and the two women would then like go into some magical garden to like sing a song together or something like that. So Sarah's like, oh, is this a love song? And Miriam um, tells her, she's like, no, I told you it was sung by two women 
And Sarah's like, but it does sound like a love song. And Miriam's like, well, then I suppose it is. And that's when she's like, are you making a pass at me? <laughs> yes. Oh, because it's the um, it's that song Duet of the Flowers, which is a famous operatic song that is used in a lot of movies when lesbian stuff is about to happen. <laughs> and it's also used in the L word when. Of course. Yes. When Bette is fingering Alice at the opera. <laughs> So, footnote. <laughs> footnote, yeah. It's, Gay footnote. Yeah, exactly. So, that, yes, I'm glad you brought that up because this song is used in a lot of movies to mm. indicate that some lesbian stuff is about to go down. Right. Uh, also, Sarah has taken off her 80s blazer and is wearing just a white t shirt and, and no, no bra. bra. Yeah. You can very visibly see her nipples through her shirt. Yes. <laughs> So it's almost like she went over there <laughs> dressed like that for a reason. Right. Uh, and yes, this is when she asks if Miriam is hitting on her and Miriam doesn't give an answer. No, Miriam goes, not that I'm aware of, Sarah. <laughs> Which is like not an answer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and we're, of course, this is the scene we're spending the longest on. because it's Of course, it's the best scene. <laughs> yeah, it's, the, it's all leading up to the best and she spills wine on her Sarah spills wine on her white shirt that she's wearing like we said with no bra right and Miriam begins to help her clean her shirt and this is when they finally kiss and the whole thing is in slow-mo yes also. yeah and the song is playing and uh dramatic classical music exactly fog and they have billowing curtains <laughs> yes and they have sex in front of a mirror <laughs> they do yeah <laughs> And Sarah's wearing like the most 80s, like high waisted black underwear ever, which I also just love. Oh, so Looks good. so good. I mean, Susan Sarandon is gorgeous. Just babe. 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 It's very sexy. So aesthetic. Yeah. And Miriam is in uh, like, like a lacy 80s onesie. Yes. Oh my god. Just really good. Yeah. Also. I mean, the, the one qualm I have about this sex scene is that they're like, they don't. I think it's on purpose, like the choreography of the sex scene. I feel mm -hmm. like they're like so like tentative and like not actually having sex. In it. Right. It's in very it. like soft. Yes. Kind of male gazy. Exactly. <laughs> and yeah. Yeah. I think the like the slow motion with the billowing curtains and the classical music also just makes it a little bit more. Uh, like a little bit more removed from anything realistic yes <laughs> yeah and but I will say like the scenes where she's where they're with that couple in the beginning and the scenes where also where she's with John are also kind of the same right so it's not like I think this is a a stylistic choice right to make the the sex like very stylized in this way um and then they feed on each other's blood. Yes, they do. And on a bed that is lit from underneath. Oh, yes. <laughs> the bed. Oh, my Just, God. Again, makes no sense, but looks absolutely beautiful it's on film. so good. I love when they feed on each other's blood. It's really yeah. hot. <laughs> and there's, you know, the queerness and immortality, right? Like, their immortality... The concept of it sort of interrupts the basic heteronuclear family structure in inherently. Like, if you never die, then there's no rush to 
or there's no per- reason to to mate and couple and settle down mm-hmm. and like preserve your legacy, right? Mm-hmm. So I was sort of thinking about that as well, like how I don't know, like this is a this is such a, maybe a vague question, but like what do we think about the queerness or the lesbianism in this movie? Like it's so almost casual, like not explored as explicitly lesbian like nobody it's says never the word yeah that. exactly and it's not even like there's any kind of uh insane internal struggle that sarah has with being attracted to a woman like right. it's kind of just is right and it's because miriam is almost like this genderless just kind of beautiful figure like vampires are often portrayed as like just gorgeous genderless beings that people just fall in love with because they're so you know erotic uh and i don't know it's i still struggle with talking about the queerness in this movie because it's so just there right in in a way like it's not like i said like nobody ever even says anything explicit about it and especially in this scene i mean it's a sex scene between two women it's the only sex scene in the movie and i don't know it's just kind of fascinating to me the way that they set everything up here right i know i feel like i also have a hard time sort of pinpointing it yeah whether it feels real or whether it feels like just a um like whether it feels real or whether it feels more contrived or like just more there for like style and it's not necessarily like about a lesbian relationship. Yes, exactly. It was just sort of like there by coincidence. Yes. Or it's there to be kind of like t- titillating because th- this concept that this gorgeous, beautiful woman vampire alternates between male and female lovers every hundreds right. of years. And I guess I've never... Actually, no. I've seen I've seen this in a couple other movies. In the movie Nadja, uh, the vampire Nadja, <laughs> she is talking to like her Renfield-ish kind of uh, servant, and she says like I would like a woman. I haven't had a woman in a few hundred years, and so I've seen this in a few other vampire movies of the bisexual female vampire, and mm. I guess I can't help but. I am. I always have to be critical of things I love. So even <laughs> though I love this movie, I can't help but feel like it's, uh, you know, kind of using bisexuality as a way to talk about greed and uh, predatory behavior. Mm. It's something to think about. Um, at the same time, you could also make the case that it's so casual that it's almost kind of it's like a non-issue yeah it's a non-issue it's almost kind of great representation right it's like not even a thing yeah Yeah. like nailing it over the head repeatedly that like this is about like a queer dynamic like it is it just it is what it is yeah exactly um so sarah is having a dinner again with her useless boyfriend (laughs) (laughs) after after this amazing blood fetish sex she just had and she, for three hours for by the three way. hours yes which feels you know honestly kind of short for, for, <laughs> for a bloodletting scene for yeah. a bloodletting lesbian sex scene <laughs> yeah three hours is nothing i mean they probably that was like a quickie for them <laughs> she's 
now also wearing an Ankh pendant. Right. So she like belongs to Miriam and her boyfriend is really jealous. He's the worst. And you know, scene. yeah. And we're talking about how the queerness is kind of a non-issue, but now I'm almost taking it back a little bit because I feel like in this scene, I mean, he's totally threatened by yes. the idea that his girlfriend may or may not have like just had an affair with a woman. Yes. And it's specifically because it's a woman and also, this scene is so, I don't know if this is intentional or not, but it's very much the, the experience of being closeted but dating a man. Yeah. <laughs> I know that there's a line in there because she like orders a raw steak and uh, doesn't eat it because she's starting to turn and so she doesn't want like human food anymore. Yes. And he's sort of like scolding her and is like, why did you order that if you're not going to eat it? Like, why would you order a steak if you're not hungry? And she makes some line about like, well, I thought I wanted it. And I'm like, that's such a metaphor for like every time I ever tried to like sleep with a man yeah. <laughs> was like I thought I wanted that I thought I wanted to order that thing but like but I actually in don't front of me, like I don't actually want that yes exactly so maybe I'm even I'm taking back what I just said like <laughs> I feel like this is explicitly addressing the her Sarah's uh nascent queerness um so she can't stop thinking about Miriam and her boyfriend is pathologizing her and right. wants her to see a doctor, which is Ugh. also after repeatedly saying what the hell is wrong with you yes. in the middle of a restaurant. Yeah, exactly. It's gross. In the middle of the darkest restaurant in New York. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and this is very familiar. I mean, he's, you know, like there must be something wrong with you. Right. Because right, she's not interested in him anymore yeah. therefore there's something wrong with exactly, her exactly exactly and it's not because he's ex- spectacularly boring, boring. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. uh back in her neon apartment <laughs> sarah is sick because she's turning into a vampire and she's ravenous but can't eat food and back at the clinic they're studying sarah's blood they've taken a sample of her blood to see what's up with her and she's become superhuman hmm. <laughs> like her blood is actively killing any other pathogens or whatever right they said that whatever blood is running through her veins is non-human yes. and it is essentially at war with her own blood and she asks which side is winning and they let her know that it's like the superhuman blood. Yeah, so <laughs> like she's taking over. Right. So she's becoming completely dependent and merged with Miriam. She confronts Miriam. Um, Sarah gets very sick at Miriam's oh, house. And oh, when she ahead. confronts Miriam, she's wearing a really beautiful silver metallic trench coat. <laughs> Amazing. Side note. Side the costuming note. again is just on like point. So fantastic. I want every outfit. <laughs> yeah. Sarah is gets very sick at Miriam's house and um, Miriam takes care of her and she brings her home a man for mm. Sarah to feed on. She goes, picks up a man. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty great. <laughs> he also is disposable. Yes, exactly. Just another man in this film who like doesn't really have a name, doesn't really have no. a purpose other than to kind of like drive the... The character development yep. of the, the women in the film. He's food. Yeah. yeah. Literally. Yeah. He also was wearing his sunglasses indoors at night. Oh, and he's on like cocaine. Automatically, <laughs> automatically makes him a douchebag. Yeah. He was on cocaine. It's the 80s. He had to put Probably. His, yeah. <laughs> uh, boring boyfriend, Tom. Oh, okay, his name is Tom. <laughs> Bob. <laughs> yeah. That's close enough. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> Comes by Miriam's looking for Sarah. 
and uh, Tom finds Sarah in bed and tries to get her, um, her to leave with him. I hate this scene. He also just gets even more like aggressive. He's so and aggressive. Cringy. Yes. And Sarah it tries to get him to leave because she knows that Miriam let him in there for Sarah to feed on. Mm-hmm. And Miriam has a very harrowing and cringy vision of herself in ancient Egypt with a headdress <laughs> on, feeding on a victim who is, who the, is only the only black, only, yes, yeah, the only black person that. that we see in the movie. Well, uh, Sarah's co-worker, who yes, nameless okay. black man, yes, exactly, <laughs> works yeah. with her. But yeah, those are the only two people of color in this entire film. Yes, and one of them is a co-worker with no name and the other one is dead. dead. So that's... Right. Not great. <laughs> I, uh, it's, oh, yeah. I mean, I'm sure Ashley Blackwell of Graveyard Shift Sisters has written about this somewhere on her Someone site. Someone needs to write about it. Yeah, so. absolutely. Um, Sarah emerges from the bedroom covered in blood. She looks amazing. Yeah, she does. Yeah, presumably having fed on Tom. And Miriam is just sitting and playing the piano. Yes. Which is also just like beautiful that she's doing that. And then her like new girlfriend comes in covered in blood. I mean, I aspire. (laughs) I want to be sitting at the piano in my townhouse mansion when my girlfriend comes. Because your like blood bottom comes back into the room. Exactly. As my blood bottom comes back into the room. (laughs) And just covered in covered in blood. From some man that she just killed. I mean, that's I'm here for that. (laughs) I'm here for forced murderous bisexuality. (laughs) (laughs) Miriam explains to her that now they will be together forever. Mm. You will forget what you were and you will begin to love me as I love you. Intense. It's, I mean, you all. (laughs) Run away if someone ever said that to me. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, I feel like if it was a few years ago, I'd probably be into it. But now I know it's unhealthy. (laughs) Red flag. Yeah, exactly. Blood flag. They they have a hot, bloody kiss. It's so hot. Mm. And Sarah takes the onk pendant from Miriam and stabs someone in the throat we don't know who it is just yet right and then we see as sarah kind of falls to the ground well they keep kissing yeah which they, i love that there, yeah. there's literal blood splurting out of something yes and they're still just like making out in it <sighs> i mean if you have a blood fetish watch this film <laughs> yeah watch this movie um and then we see that she's stabbed herself in the throat mm-hmm. she would rather die than live this way right which you know i find unrealistic (laughs) i in the book like she is suicidal because she killed tom and she loves tom ew and i'm like really bob (laughs) exactly that's a better name for him uh so miriam is in agony over this Mm -hmm. because sarah is on the ground dying but sarah doesn't know that she can't die it's just that she's she she takes Sarah up to the attic full of lovers to entomb her. And Sarah doesn't know that all she's done is kill her body. She can't kill her consciousness. Mm. So she's just sped up the process that was eventually going to happen in a few hundred years. Right. 
but somehow all of Miriam's dead lovers have escaped their tombs. Attack of the exes. Yeah, attack of the exes. Yep. And are coming for Miriam. And she yells at them that she I loves love you. Them. I love you. I love you all. Exactly. <laughs> how did they're they, like trying to destroy her. How did they get out of the boxes? I don't know. The, this whole ending gets a little uh, murky yeah. <laughs> in terms of like how we get from point A to B. It doesn't did, totally did John like incite a riot. <laughs> mutiny yeah john john caused a mutiny but again this does not happen in the book like Mm. sarah just gets entombed and is now like one of the lovers interesting in in a box because i was one of the the articles that i was reading was saying that when um sarah slits her own throat she essentially like exposes but I guess not when it makes sense. Like exposes Miriam to her like contaminated blood, which is why when Miriam then falls over the banister, which happens after her exes kind of like come for her and like surround her and start attacking her. She like freaks out, jumps back and falls over the stairwell banister down into like the the entryway of the house. And then she starts like writhing around on the ground, aging rapidly this article was saying that that's because like she was then covered in Sarah's blood and I don't she think like so. got the disease that made her age no, rapidly. No, I think I feel like that's not it. No, maybe. I mean, I don't know any other explanation though why yeah. she falls down a flight of stairs and then suddenly just ages to her death in a matter of like a minute and then all of her exes start falling apart and then they all die i thought like the the fall just killed her like i thought i i have this idea that she's not she's immortal but she's not unkillable Mm -hmm. and that falling from that height like she died why does she age then i guess that i just was like this is what happens when this race dies they decay yeah and then that means it doesn't really make a whole I don't lot know. of sense. And, you know, it doesn't make a lot of sense because it's not true to the book. Like, this <laughs> is when they had to, like, deviate from the book. And right. they were like, eh, it's just a killer. It's- <laughs> right. Well, I read somewhere that um, they had a different ending for it. And then I guess when they showed it to test audiences, yes. people got upset. And it, said was, it was, like, too dark. It was so the original kinda, ending. Like, rewrote yeah. the ending into what you see on film, which is kind of just doesn't make sense well i think that yeah that has to be why it doesn't make sense because i think the original ending was true to the book Mm. which is dark and i think people need like the predator the villain to die Mm. in movies i don't but i think a lot of people want that That happy ending yeah like a quote-unquote happy ending um so as you were saying she gets attacked by her exes and Right, she falls from the the flight of stairs and she starts to age rapidly and all of the exes are finally free and can die. <laughs> One, they're all just standing over her at the top of the staircase looking down on her. Yeah. Which is just horrifying to think about if all my exes were just like standing above me, staring at me. Yeah, at once as corpses. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Horrible to think yeah, about. Yeah, I mean, it's, I do not want to imagine that. No. In the end, we see this detective who was hunting down Alice. Again, useless character. Useless. Enter the now empty house, which is being sold off. Mm -hmm. And we see Sarah 
still alive somewhere it doesn't look like new york no it looks like i don't know what city it's supposed to be but it does not look like a new york landscape no maybe it's la or something i don't know yeah and she's in her own smoky apartment right with a male and a female lover right and now she keeps miriam in a box Mm -hmm. and she looks longingly over the skyline from her balcony and then the credits roll yeah and that is the hunger (laughs) so wow love this movie yeah i think my my favorite parts are the costumes, mm-hmm. the music, the lighting design, the lighting kills me. Yeah, and you were saying that this also inspired your work, the lighting design and the aesthetic and everything. Yeah, not not like so directly. I think if you just like looked at my work without knowing me, you wouldn't necessarily see the influence in it. But I've used this film in so many mood boards. <laughs> For so many years now. Um, yeah. I think they should remake this movie with an actually Egyptian vampire. Whoa. And that would be what I would want to see. <laughs> yes. But yeah, maybe someone picked this up. Uh, I, you know, I know, lesbians, vampires, it's got everything. Goths. Right. I mean, come on. Fog machine. (laughs) Fog machine. Lesbians, fog machine. It's hard for me to even like talk about how much I love this movie because I'm like, well, duh. Yeah. Right. Of course I love this movie. (laughs) Like it's part of my DNA. (laughs) I feel like. So, Rainy, thank you so much for doing this episode. Of course. Where can people find you on social media? Um, you, I have multiple Instagram accounts. Great. <laughs> um, you can find my more like personal page with all of my fetish photography on Instagram. Uh, my handle is lover, which is spelled L O V V R. And then I also run a second account where, um, I curate fetish art. So I'm also like a book collector and a porn collector. So I have a lot of scans that I'll then post to this other Instagram account, and that is called Dressed for Pleasure. Just all one word, no it's underscores so or anything. That's so like, if you're into fetish photography, follow one, follow my account because that's follow my work. both, please. But then also look at look at my other page too. Oh my god, you're but okay. First of all, I can't speak highly enough of Lainey's photography. Like, oh, thank you. Go hire her. Go look at her Instagram. Like, it is everything (laughs) and also your dressed for pleasure account is i think my favorite instagram account yeah (laughs) that's awesome dressed for pleasure and there's another account i really like called fetish therapy i don't know who runs it i don't know what that is yeah i don't need to look that up it's just fetish art it's old fetish art yeah and i really like that and yeah if you need more leather dykes in your life go scoop that up yeah which we all need more leather dykes in our life. <laughs> also, if you are a nerd for books and porn and you know of other queer fetish photographers, specifically like in the 70s and 80s, because it's most of what everything that I post on that page, please send me those because I feel like I get stuck <laughs> and there's only so many. And the majority of the work that I post on Just for Pleasure is like shot by men. And most of the models are just like thin white women because that's typically the only stuff that has gotten exposure over the last like 30 years yeah so if you have recommendations of other artists please 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 just like 
send them to me yeah let me know my my listeners often send me messages when i when i announce things on the podcast so do it again guys (laughs) (laughs) uh and what what is another thing i want to say oh we also we kind of didn't talk about i mean this is just just to mention like how inspired by like helmet Lang, this movie is Helmet Newton. Helmet Newton, this movie, <laughs> one of the helmets, and I, uh, uh, how, how inspired by Helmet Newton this movie is, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, I just wanted to mention that as well because uh, you were talking about your account, and I, I was yeah, saying, and he's also one of my like all time favorites, which feels like a cliche because uh, he's like the biggest a, out there. But yeah, there's a reason yeah, why exactly. I love. It. I mean, we're sitting in my apartment right now, and you can see my like fat ass like helmet newton book on my coffee table yes. and i have his art like hung up and framed all over my apartment so amazing yeah. love yes and you can find me on instagram and twitter as girls guts giallo you can follow my personal account at fat goth f-a-t-g-a-w-t-h and you can donate not donate because i actually make content so you're subscribing not a charity yeah exactly to my patreon which is patreon.com slash girls guts giallo and you can find all my bonus content there bonus episodes and articles and things of that nature so check it out and until next time i'm annie rose mallet and this is girls guts and jello white on white translucent black capes back on the rack the little goose is dead the bats have left the bell tower the victims have been bled and velvet lines the black box the little goose is dead the little goose is dead Yeah.